The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. Today's radio pharmaceuticals aren't your daddy's chemotherapies. Multimodal approaches to the delivery of radiologically active compounds have created a fertile environment for players in the space to put on a precision medicine clinic, so to speak. What's more, radiopharmaceuticals create a unique business opportunity given the closely related and necessary companion diagnostics arena. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of The Business of Biotech, recorded in San Francisco, I'm sitting down with Dr. Jack Hoppen, CEO of Ratio Therapeutics, a company that's well-positioned in the space with a fresh Series B and the foundation of a tunable radiotherapeutic that Hoppen says addresses the delivery, safety, and efficacy challenges long associated with radiopharmaceuticals in the treatment of solid cancers. Let's give it a listen. We came here to talk about Ratio Therapeutics. We did, yeah. and, and Ratio Therapeutics is interesting to me personally, and to the and to the podcast, I mean, we're 180 plus episodes deep into this thing, and I maybe have had one or two other radio pharmaceutical companies on, maybe, and it was like early days because I couldn't tell you who they are. So, yeah. um, so I'm not like intimately familiar with what's going on in that space sure, right now. Sure. So, tell me, give me a lay of land before you get into like ratio and why it's better than all the other radio. Which you're from? Yeah, well, that's good. I, I hear that a lot. Um, Tell, tell me a little bit about what uh, what the space looks like. Give me, give me the landscape. Sure. So the notion of injecting um, a radioactive drug for the purpose of killing cancer, uh, cytotoxic effect, is not novel. Uh, right. And it's, and it's not, yeah, it's not, not novel or, or, uh, or, or new. No. Like uh, radioactive iodine-131, radioactive iodine was approved by the FDA in 1951. Mm-hmm. And it's still a standard of care for thyroid cancer and even hypothyroidism, just biological treatment. Um, there was a, a couple good drugs that came out in, uh, back at the turn of the century, um, yeah. for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they were good drugs, but were not economically successful, somewhat controversially. And then, um, Bayer came to market with Sofiga, which is radium chloride for metastatic bone cancer, uh, very akin to the radioactive iodine, which is injecting an isotope, and it just goes, in the case of iodine, to the thyroid, and in the case of radium chloride, it goes to osteoblast, the interface of the tumor and bone and metastatic bone cancer. So it's, it, it, it is efficacious to a point. It's also very good in a palliative care sense. And then what's happened, then the boom really has been the last... Over the last decade, more specifically the last five years, with Novartis making acquisitions and then getting approval for Lutathera for neuroendocrine disease. It's um, targets is somatostatin. And um, Pluvicto was approved for castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer, and that targets PSMA or prostate-specific membrane antigen. They, they're very good drugs with 
very little side effects. Um, and that's why people have just gotten really excited. We've seen the big players come to the market over the last five years. There's been some recent and exciting acquisitions in the space. Mm-hmm. So um, I was really interested, as I mentioned in that previous life, working with Sony regulated drugs of being in this space, but there really weren't the big players in the market. And that's what's needed, I think, for the supply side, for the distribution and the commercial side. We've watched a, just a, a lot of players come in, in the last, just in the last year. Eli Lilly made a big acquisition. Chris Marshwood just announced a big acquisition. Um, to join the likes of already present Novartis, Bayer, and we see other big drug companies um, doing some trials and looking mm-hmm. in the space. So that's that's a big change for the market. Yeah, positive. Do you really positive because the drugs are good and and they're they're a very um, you know I think supply chain was an issue in the past. Uh, manufacturing is always a topic. You're making something that's decaying. So there's it's another level of complexity as mm-hmm. your your shelf life is very short. Yeah, you're you know you're making each batch and releasing it. Yeah, and so um, but the those two drugs, Lutera and Plicto, really have been the game changer, and now we see a huge pipeline of other companies and drugs in the in the space. So uh, now let's zoom out a little bit. Yeah, and give me some perspective on where radio pharmaceuticals. Kind of fit in the landscape of small malls, traditional biologics, even cell and gene therapies. Yeah, so for bloodborne cancers, those two drugs I mentioned, or lymph- lymphoma, for non Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, those were antibodies. Um, but for solid tumors, while people have tried with antibodies, realistically, it's a small molecule sport. You need something with high um, capillary permeability, tissue diffusivity. You want to get something up and into the tumor quickly, and small molecules best lend themselves to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't want, you are injecting a radioactive material, so you don't want long circulating radiation in the body. Right. Um, so people have been really going after small molecules and peptides, not another type of small molecule. And so um, we're a small molecule company um, with a platform that hitchhikes uh, albumin. So we have very weak binding to albumin as compared to very preferentially very strong binding to the tumor antigen. You're looking for targets that are specific to solid tumors that are highly expressed in that environment and with very little off-target. The efficacy is very predictable. Mm -hmm. It's really a function of how much radiation absorbed dose you can get to the tumor in a given dosing cycle as compared to what would be your off-target dosimetry. So it's that ratio. Um, the area under the curve, yeah. those relative regions of interest are where you completely define your therapeutic efficacy, your therapeutic window. And uh, and so the great hope of this class of drug is very often as a replacement for chemotherapeutics. Um, the side effects are much lower, little to no impact on the immune system depending on the drug. So not borne out yet, but as we've really been focusing on single agent efficacy, but the, the great hope is that these in combination with other therapies would be disruptive because you most people don't feel much or any effect of the drug. There, mm-hmm. there can be if you you know they there if you don't have the ratio right. If you don't have the ratio right. Well radioactivity is not selective. It, we use two types of 
emitter is beta, or alpha is beta, or electron and alphas are in the nuclei. One is literally 8,000 times bigger than the other. They have different properties, and there's different isotopes that can be used. But then from that, you can calculate sort of what is the right isotope for that drug. Mm-hmm. We're, we're really learning now what what are the trade-offs of all of these so Novartis is Novartis, uh, emerging biotech, a small biotech is a small biotech. That's correct. You've got, I mean, that goes without saying. One of the differentiators being, um, you know, you, you've got to raise money. You, yeah. Not that they don't, but the resources are a little thicker, right? So Novartis is a different economic. That's a very eloquent way to say what else. Yeah. Um, And it's, as we all know, super competitive and difficult. It's been difficult for a couple of years now. Yeah. Um, So so I guess that's my next line of question. I'm curious about, uh, you know, what the investment appetite looks like. Um, It's easy for a person in the position of industry observer to get spun up in you know, anything RNA or get spun up in anything ATMP, cell and gene therapies, or, you know, get caught up in the, in the excitement around ADCs. Right. Um, so I know what the investment appetite looks like there. Yeah. What does it look like for radio pharmaceuticals? It, it has been really strong. Um, mm-hmm. It's been, you know, the last two years of uh, VC investing in the space have been, Somewhat frozen, mm-hmm. uh, not really far, just our space in general. Yeah. 2023 being uh, down here with forecasted thawing. Many, lots of market economics have got us into that position. Um, we've yet to have an institutional investor in the company. Um, we did, uh, the company was founded, uh, following a transaction with, um, buyer. Pharmaceuticals, and part of that was a strategic alliance to start work on one drug that they had acquired um, when they acquired Noria and PSMA Therapeutics, which I should add was really the, the trigger of the founding of Ratio. John Babish, who was the founder of that company, had reached out to me to study um, kind of the pharmacokinetics of, of this platform, which I immediately fell in love with, a fit for purpose radio pharmaceutical. And uh, so we really seeded the company through the, a couple of non-dilutive deals and then just some seed capital with the Series A last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, all large-scale family offices and uh, insiders. And then we just closed the Series B, which we won't announce until next week. So it's, I don't know when you're playing this podcast, but... It'll be after next week. That's what I figured. Yeah. And so uh, at that time, you will have... Uh, heard the news. It'll be known that we raised, uh, we closed the Series B uh, at the end of last year for $50 million, about half existing shareholders, half new. Um, we we did not have any classic VCs in that round either. We did have um, a strategic and um, another large scale family office. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been going well. You know, you, you I think. The appetite for radio pharmaceuticals is high in the marketplace. Yeah. So, um, it, it's always hard to know what kind of, we're a product company and, and free money valuations. I would say we got, I think we did a, we're very rational and, and got a very fair. I think it was a fair deal for all parties. That's a fair wins the day. Mm-hmm. Always. I would always suggest that. 
I mean, unfair is one of the things that got us in this mess a few years ago. Uh, unfair leads to, it always goes wrong. Not always, but it usually goes wrong. Right. And so um, we felt good about, we feel very good about our shareholder base. We feel very good about the raids. Um, we, what's another unique aspect of radio pharmaceuticals is we inject incredibly small amounts of drug. So these are injections of a hundred or so micrograms of drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and radioactivity is only on about one in a thousand of these molecules. So it's a, it's incredible thing. A little radioactivity required yeah. to be so cytotoxic. So there isn't an anxiety of the toxicity is the radioisotope. There isn't, you're at such a low mass of drug that you're not going to have drug effects. Yeah. And so, um, this is a long-winded way to say common in the space and certainly in the origins of Ludothera and Pubicto is compassionate use case work in Germany, Austria. It's also done in some other countries where patients that have failed standard of care can be prescribed by local, by locally produced and locally manufactured uh, radioactive drug product, mm-hmm. even if it's not approved yet. Yeah, it has to have some safety understanding to it. Sure. Um, so we have, with our research collaborators in Germany and Austria, been able to do and investigate our drugs already in patients. And so that I think really is an accelerating decision. Go no go. It's a very unique aspect of this drug you image. Uh, you know where the drug is, and then you can treat the patient. So you have it's a very quantitative sport, so to speak. Yeah, uh, and so that. That I think, even though the company's only not quite three years old, we we, we come we came with a big IP position to start, and we, um, you know, John Babich was at Cornell. His IP portfolio is fully in the company, other than what we had sold to Meyer. And so, um, you know, in that sense, there's it's a different sport. You know, it's not like we said we have a new we have a new platform or we have an idea. We're going to raise a large Series A and just try to get going on it. We, right. we really showed up with, we have, we have a fair bit of, we filed two INDs already. We have, we put up a fair body of knowledge around our platform. Yeah. Um, that low, uh, I guess low ratio of radioactivity. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Uh, does that play favorably to like one, you know, one of the biggest problems in biologics right now from, uh, Patient access perspective is cost of development, cost of manufacturing. Um, it, does it, is there an advantage there? It, I would say, unfortunately, no. Uh, uh, I, I do think that society has, well, yes and no. It depends. In the spectrum of things, I'd say we, the upside is we have synthetic organic chemistry, medicinal chemistry that can just make the precursor. But there is, expe- there is, Significant expense in the manufacturing of the radio, putting radioactivity on the drug. Mm-hmm. So just that process is expensive. In the scheme of things, compared to many gene therapies, for example, it's still a lot cheaper than a lot of. Yeah, I mean, I think society's got pretty good at scaling up on. Right. You know, so it's it it's not prohibitive cost wise, but I, I can't say it's a cheap sport. And yeah. as you know. It, it, it's still any any manufacturer right now, small molecule or other still. Um, but but cogs for the cold drug are cheaper here, no question. Yes, yeah. the radioactive part that's expensive. 
Right. So, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah, you were uh, you were saying you're, you're uh, based in Boston, and yeah. You, uh, also, last year, in addition to that series, they opened an R and D facility. We here. did. So that was that was interesting to me. I'd, I'd like to hear about what goes on there at that at that R and D facility. Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, Having witnessed both insourcing and outsourcing, realist with radioactivity, it's a lot easier to insource. You you just making decisions in general it is, but well, because no one in the outsourcing community wants to deal with radioactive yeah, well, the, material. That, that was my background. The old company, Picro, <laughs> is an out, is like the primary outsource service providers for these nice. things, and they're a great company. But it, it's also speed. You still want to use them for certain things, but just quick speed is is a big issue and. A lot of assays with radioactivity. Just having a lab that can handle radioactivity is inherently mm-hmm. um, different than um, having all cer- certain classic ABD and PK that might be easier to outsource. It, it's always a time and money conversation. And so we built a 19,000 square foot headquarter lab in the seaport of District Boston's about. 45% lab, 55% office. Um, so true discovery facility, medicinal chemistry, radio chemistry, um, in vitro, ex vivo, and, um, you know, pharmacology. Yeah. Uh, what does that, I mean, give us some, to the best of your ability, an, uh, an illustration of what that lab looks like and how those different disciplines kind of are situated physically and encouraged to work together. Yeah. Um, when giving you a tour, which I'll have to give you. Yeah, it will happen. I promise. Yeah. You know, you can start, you can think, we, we do, you know, there's four medicinal chemists making compounds. We do use CMOs as well. Um, so sometimes they'll be building part of the molecule, doing some of the syntheses. And, then, um, and that's a classic med chem lab. And then Kind of order of operations. Next would be order the radiochemistry lab. They're they're unique in that you have probably thirty metric tons of lead in that lab, mm-hmm. um, and it it's uh, we're in a, a really cool building in the seaport called the Design Center, mm-hmm. which was the largest building in the U.S. when the Pentagon was built wow. in, in the '30s. So it was really for storage of arms. So it's kind of eighteen. It, is, it can handle that kind of weight on the sixth floor. Usually radio chemists are in the basement. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that building specifically can handle that. And then we have a vivarium uh, for just for mice and rats. And there's a lot of procedure rooms in there as well as the most common asset here would be to do a biodistribution study and gamma count what or, or just count radioactivity per organ to understand the the bio D of the drug. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a biochemistry lab, we cell culture lab, and a biochem lab where we can do in vitro and ex vivo work. You have to take, uh, I mean, you have to take special precautions in terms of like the, I mean, like if I, if, I walk, so. if I walk around your lab with a Geiger meter, would I get real concerned? Yeah, so there's Geiger counter. We, we would Geiger. give you a dose meter, a visiting dose meter just to come into the lab. And then there's, there's Geiger counters to on the way in and out to make sure you're not radioactive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, these are very serious things, but um, openly not like, you know, if you were at uh, Los Alamos, there would be more stressful radioisotopes. These are all me- isotopes used in medicine, so right. they have rational um, 
half-lives of decay. They, you know, but yes, there's a lot of precautions. Everyone has to be trained. You have it. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to have a bond. You know, there's there's a lot of licensing and safety that go into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it, it's um, and depending on the day, absolutely, the guy kind of would light up. Now, hopefully, at the end of the day, it would not. Right. Uh, so uh, happily, when everyone's going home from the lab, that there wouldn't just be radioactivity out. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the, it's part of the rules, perhaps. Yeah. So, um, you do light tests, and you know, it's just the nature of how. Yeah, I was just curious. You know, we, we cover a lot of uh, companies that have obviously have biologic. Yeah, uh, exactly. High potency biologics is sort of a different animal. Yeah, it w- this would be you know nothing as stressful as a BSL three and certainly BSL four. Um, but it, it, there's a you you have to be careful. I, biggest among them is the safety. Safety first, always safety for everyone working there, and also just safety. I think you know you, you just have to be really diligence to not get you know there, there's special uh, ventilation mm-hmm. um, radioactive iodine for example can be volatile so you have stacks with monitors and so on but you know you, you just can't let radioactive out of the facility yeah what might the future hold in terms of building that space out as you get closer to you know manufacturing as you build you know the need for manufacturing capacity is that in the work in the plans or yeah we we've decided to go on the partner strategy for manufacturing um we've um we have a really good partner which will also be press releasing that alliance uh, this quarter in north america and another partner in europe uh many companies in our space have decided to vertically integrate their manufacturing manufacturing we just saw how strong these CDMOs are mm-hmm. in this space and felt we should partner in the make by partner conversation. Yeah. I think our core competency is really in discovery and translation. And I think our capital is better spent on that. And we'll we'll file an IND this year for our first therapeutic. The the first two INDs were for imaging. Um, so this would be the first therapeutic ID. Yeah. Yeah, so this is an interesting, uh, as you, you started to kind of go down that path, explaining why it's you know, rational. Uh, yes. You know, yeah. rational, but now I'm understanding it's more necessary than even rational. Yeah, it, it's pretty hard. It, it's not impossible if, let's say, you were working on a target for which there was already an established diagnostic, mm-hmm. like PSMA or somatostatin. Um, even FAP, which is our lead program, we, we did a deal for our FAP diagnostic with Lantheus and they'll, we finished the phase one and they'll clinically develop it. But there's a couple other groups making FAP diagnostics. But if you're going after a target that for which there isn't one, you're going to have to, people are going to want to see the, the inclusion criteria that this person is. You're, you're, you're going to want to know mm-hmm. that you have high enough concentration target to put that patient on a, yeah. a radiotherapy. Yeah. Are there advantages beyond, like, I mean, the obvious advantages, if you identify a new target, you're, you can create the diagnostic, you're well equipped to yeah. move, move quickly and be agile. Are, are there other advantages? I, mean, um, I, I think that it is the, it, one of the big advantages can be with while you're working on the diagnostic, um, you're going to really understand if you have a therapy. Mm-hmm. So just that, and some people wouldn't even differentiate them. I want to understand 
what are the pharmacokinetics of my portfolio okay. for this target? Yeah. And you need to understand um, if you have a drug. Con- the correlation to antibody drug conjugates and having an LBT or something like this, um, you really... The concentration seen in the PET scan is very predictive of the outcome of the therapy. Mm-hmm. So if you have a really high concentration in the PET scan, your likelihood of response is higher. It, it's specific to the drug and the target. Right. Okay. Um, and, you know, when you do a PET scan, you inject and then scan someone. And here for the therapy, it's really about the residence time over, you know, you want a half-life of residence of 100 hours. You know, that's the kind yeah. of residence time you need. So and they don't need to be the same molecule. Our diagnostic, for example, needs to be conscious now. Our therapy stays on target. Yeah. Essentially, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, there are compassionate use cases where locally sourced uh, radiotherapeutics are being used, you know, as I said, in compassionate use examples. Um, but yet, yet you say it's it's not insignificant to, to manufacture these therapeutics in terms of cost. So it's, it's interesting to me, like I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah, to, those, those sites um, have a radio pharmacy. They have radio chemists. Okay. They already have the infrastructure. Gotcha. So, okay. And that's really a one-off. It's really when you think about scaling something across a continent for supply of all patients. You know, I think Novartis has done a great job of scaling up their manufacturing. Mm-hmm. There, have been, there have been growing pains because the, the, the demand is outpacing the supply, but they're addressing them. And so it, there, it's it just gets harder as you scale. No, that's good. I'm glad I asked, and I'm glad you cleared that up for me because when I hear you know compassionate use locality, I think oh that may lend itself to scalability and distribution of therapeutics globally. And in this case, that's not the case. And they're a little different. The those are really uh, um, they'll have release criteria and QC, but you know they just scale. You know, and, and so. Um, I, th- I think part of the excitement of the big players coming to the market is now real dollars mm. and of really good companies are putting real effort into making sure that this is a scalable enterprise and it's already being demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So, yeah. um, you know, it, there's many ways isotopes are produced um, and both through public channels um, like the DOE, but also through Mm-hmm. But historically, where there's a will, there's a way. If, if there's demand, we can, so we, you know, society will make it. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier that your undergrad is in mathematics. And um, you, I have a, 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 a PhD in mathematics. PhD, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. But so is my yes. undergrad. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and you gave me a little bit of the backstory on what brought you to ratio. Yeah. Um, but the life life sciences space in, in in general, like what's the what was the motivation to say? Was it just kind of fortuitous? Were you following the Yeah, I would say that um I came from a an imaging lab mm-hmm. and so I was working on imaging problems and I did a postdoc at a German national lab where we developed this is you know, the lab developed a technology um 
a nuclear imaging technology for rodent imaging. So yeah. I use rodent at the same resolution as well, Was that experience like, I guess the, the question I'm, I'm wanting to get to is like, was that experience uh, a revealing of of a passion or were you sort of the mathematician who would apply his mathematical skills to any problem presented to him? Yeah. Or just sort of the, so the, the, cause you stay, right. You're stuck around. Now you're the, you know, now you're leading a, yeah. a biopharmaceutical company. Yeah. The turn of events was, um, after that, an American company and licensed it. I moved to Hungary where we made the product hmm. and I took right in turn and really worked on that product and saw and really traveled, lived on an airplane. Effectively, as we sold the product and got got intimate with a lot of universities and pharmaceutical companies using this technology in their research, and with a passion of doing quantitative analyses, writing software to uh, and and then built a company based on that as a software and service, and saw I really gained respect for pharma companies and how solid they were at adopting technology and being very thorough. I just gained a lot of respect for Paul. Really? And, and I was really impressed with how... When you say biotech, I mean, like, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm like, the pharmaceutical industry is, I mean, big bio is like notorious for being laggard in terms of tech adoption. But you're talking biotech. You're talking like there's the new age of biotech. I, I would say... Um, no, I, you're, you're, I'm you're talking about all pharma. Yeah. Big biotech and pharma. So both big and small. Hmm. The small typically couldn't afford this infrastructure. So they were outsourcing it, which is why we started yeah. a company. Yeah. But the, I was very impressed with how many of them would, I don't want to be critical of universities, but universities would have some, some universities would have been great, but others would have built out a facility and not necessarily be putting it through its paces where when pharma decided to go after and deploy a technology for use in their, their discovery programs, um, that they were impressive. Yeah. All right. Good. Good stuff. Um, so what if like we had a predicted pharma are huge, uh, to, to, if I could, Shift your paradigm. Yeah, they are. Well, maybe they, <laughs> you can try. In my experience, they are absolutely willing to make significant investments in new technology if it serves their purpose to make a go/no-go no go decision in their discovery business. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's a. Yeah, I make a sweeping generalization. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you look at the. You know, you look at the the past ten years where this wave has been building around AI and machine learning and. That's the age-old conversation about innovation, that kind of innovation, even scientific innovation coming from, from biotech and feeding up into, into, into big bio. Yeah, I think that um, having built and run an informatics company in a previous life, but obviously that ratio, we were very dedicated to a data management platform where all data are coming in, they're being ingested. We put good effort into ingestion and evaluation. You know, throwing AI is another tool, and, and, and obviously with ChatGPT, we have now a language model tool, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you, you have to have well-structured um, data to, to glean insights. Um, it, we certainly have made it easier as a society to, to, do, to use those tools, but the effort is, if you look at data science, it's 90%. 
management ten percent analysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even the, the the super heavy AI centric companies I talk to, you know, when you you compare and contrast what they're doing to the company that's just sort of like playing the AI you know nomenclature game because it's yeah. sexy right now. Yeah. Um, that's those fundamentals are are key among the understanders, right? Yeah, this space does lend it imaging radiology um, in general. Um, it lends itself very well to machine learning. So people, so radiology has had the most AI FDA approvals in terms of readouts. Um, nuclear medicine left less so, but we did in our lifetime. It was turned a lot of machine learning on this type of these types of data. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing obviously a movement in digital pathology as well, but it's, it's a harder problem. Yeah. But it's right. Uh, yeah. So I, I could talk about that all day. It's, oh, another episode. Yeah. Uh, what's next for ratio? Like what's the next big step on the continuum? The, you know, finally designed the uh, continue. Now we've seen success with this platform making fit for purpose molecules, having this tunable nature of being able to immediately kind of look at what is the right form. Having, it's been, it's been impressive how quantitatively tunable the platform is by, by modifying the album binder. And so, uh, turning our focus on to a couple of the targets where we think we can make an improvement on existing, uh, modes. I, I, I don't know that. You know, we to date have not gone after completely novel targets. We've worked on targets that are well characterized. It's mm-hmm. a lot faster. There's there's preclinical information when things are well characterized, and we can turn our attention. So that's been a strategic decision today. Yeah, yeah. and I don't see that changing. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it should be a. We're pretty excited. We're we're very optimistic around the lead. Program yeah. because we've already treated patients. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's an advantage. Um, when you you come to a place like San Francisco, yeah. or a, a big investor conference, what are you looking to get out? Like, what's what's sort of the ML? Um, you know, I have um, right after this, I will go to a meeting with potential collaborators in the, in the pharma space. Uh, you know, there's. We know our role in the industry, and it's very often it can be good to have. So I'm looking at potential licensing discussions, um, meeting with more more B2B. Um, I, we just closed our Series B, so I am meeting with some financiers, but mm-hmm. more ongoing relations, not business development. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not like. Uh, uh, you, you don't have your pitch deck in your pocket. Yeah, I, I, into, uh, I don't. I, I did enough pitching last year to last me a while. Yeah. The, uh, no, that would not this year. That wouldn't be the focus. But, yeah. You know, relationships and um, it, just good conversations about what's happening in the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have we already have some strategic partnerships with Big Pharma, so we need to get those. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully, this conversation served as a, a warm up for your for your next one. Yeah. Um, exactly. What haven't I asked you that I should have asked you about you and Ray Shell? Yeah. What part of the story am I missing? Um, it's your last chance to, you know, do something other than give I, me do something other than give me your pitch deck. <laughs> yeah, I think that you asked having I have helped start and build a couple organizations, and you asked like, what would you say to an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, I mean that's yeah, I mean that's that's yeah, yeah, that's a. I just think I mean I think that I will say, you know, some people say what would you do differently, and very often it's just I wouldn't have done it. But the, yeah. uh, I'm not yeah. quite that. I would just say making sure you're you're getting people advising you who have done it and are wildly critical of what you're doing. Mm. There's just no value in people telling you that you're doing Well, since you brought it up, uh, I'll ask you a follow-up question to that. What, where, where do you find that group of people? Or, you know, even if it's smaller, like what sort of form do you find yourself in where you're exposing yourself to that sort of criticism by the, the folks who have scraped their knees? I think when you, I think that could be a benefit of raising capital or just, you know, a history of doing business. Um, it's not a single answer, right? I mean, I would say the people whose advice I seek have pretty varied backgrounds mm-hmm. and varied experiences, but they all have good experience. Not, are you saying not necessarily just in biotech? In life, but I think that, you know, I think of a few people that are either on the board or frankly observing or coming or have invested in whose opinion I respect and trying to triangulate. Um, from them, what their thoughts are. Yeah. Uh, and always, I'm a big believer in always finding someone who's, who I assume it's not that point of dumber than most and most things. So just finding someone who. Yeah, PhD in mathematics. But so finding someone who can give, who's been there, can give you, but you don't have to do everything they say, but you, you really need people. My big, the biggest mistake I've seen come is people convince themselves of something. And, that may or may not be true. And they need feedback. They need pushback. One last question on that. What's a safe forum for that kind of... Is, is it a one-to-one? I, mean, uh, I prefer one-to-one. Yeah. Uh, and usually before a board meeting. I don't think... I think you know, a board meeting should really be alignment, execution. Um, I think we'd all like to think about strategy in a board meeting. And it's good to discuss them, but... I, I don't think I don't think there should be surprises in board meetings. I think those conversations should take place prior. You, you should consensus building is the job of a CEO. They should, they, the consensus can't be built just in a board meeting. It has to be built prior. Yeah. Uh, do you consider yourself a serial entrepreneur at this point, or do you need a couple more notches? I don't. You know, I I I've only done things because I thought they had a good mission, a good purpose. Most things come from there. Um, I, I think my people might call me that, but uh, I don't know that. I think as long as you have a good mission, mm-hmm. a good purpose, and you you believe you have a rational technology to address the mission and purpose, uh, the mission the apply. Yes, yeah. Execute, ideas are cheap; they're very cheap. Execution is very hard. Yeah. Well, very good. I uh, I know you're. Um, I'm abusing your time. You've got another appointment to get to, but uh, this has been enjoyable, Doctor Jack Hoppen, uh, Racial Therapeutics. Great. Enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, going to take you up on a, a tour of the lab, please, in Boston. We're going to get you gowned up. We're uh, not going to put any radioactivity on you. That's, that's great. But we're going to confirm that as we walk out of the lab. I'd like to hear it because my wife would like to hear that as well. Um, yeah, it'll probably be in the spring when the yeah. weather when the weather I, breaks. I, I, would, I would, I you know, I at least wait till March. For sure. That's what's going to happen. All right. Great meeting you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks for all you do.
I'm Matt Piller, and you just listened to the Business of Biotech, the weekly podcast dedicated to the builders of biotech. We drop a new episode with a new exec every Monday morning, and I'd like you to join our community of subscribers at bioprocessonline.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our never-spammy, always-insightful monthly newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. If you have feedback or topic and guest suggestions, hit me up on LinkedIn and let's chat. And as always, thanks for listening.